Father in heaven, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us today. And my prayer, Lord, is that as we continue our study through the book of Jonah, that this would not just be an ancient story, but as we've been learning, it would be increasingly a modern story, a story to which we can apply our own lives and our own stories and our own situations. And Father, I pray especially for today, you know that there are going to be several very significant points that I believe are exceedingly germane, not just to the global church, but to our local Kingscliff church. And I pray, Father, today that by Your grace and through the Spirit and, and through the words that You give me, that, that we would be able to feel the force of these points, that Scripture would come alive today, Father. I pray that that great promise that we see in Hebrews, that the Word of God is living and powerful, would be true today, that Scripture would be alive, not an ancient dusty document, but today a living, breathing document, a document that places its finger on the very pulse of our lives and our desires and our fears and our hopes. So, Father, now as we turn our attention to You through Scripture, may You, by the Holy Spirit, turn Your attention to us, and may the inspiring Spirit now become the instructing Spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, so you know the drill. Open your Bibles with me to the book of what? Book of Jonah. Thank you, Landon. Oh, good toss. All right, there we go. All right, so we're in the book of Jonah, and uh, let's see what we've got up here. The last two sermons we've begun with a bit of an interesting quotation, the first from Macklemore, last Sabbath from Steve Jobs, and I searched for a quotation that would sort of launch us in, but I didn't come up with anything, and rather than forcing the issue, I said, no, nah, we're just going to start as it is. So today we're in part three of a seven-part series. We had the introduction, but even though it's part three, today we enter into scene two. Remember, the book of Jonah is made up of two parts, we'll get to that in just a second, and two major acts, right, with the intermission in the middle. So scene one, scene two, scene three, that's part one, and then we have scene one, scene two, scene three in part two. And today we find ourselves in scene two of part one, which is kind of confusing now because this is part three, but this is scene two of part one, you get the idea. And today we're talking about the mysterious man. Our sermon title is The Mysterious Man. Maybe this will make it a little bit clearer. Here's the slide that we put up last week. And as we make our way through, I'll gray out the the episode or the scene that we have covered. Right? So you've got your six episodes up here. The first episode is God Calls Jonah. We talked about that last week. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Today we're going to be on the second episode, Jonah and Gentiles. Now I know I've made this point already, but I see some new faces out there, so I just want to make sure that we cover this, that the book of Jonah is really symmetrical. It's really what, everyone? Symmetrical, intentionally symmetrical. Not only are there two almost equal parts, part one and part two, but those two parts are divided into three scenes each, right? And those three scenes are all very similar in their basic construction. So for example... Scene one in both parts is God calls Jonah. Scene two in both parts is Jonah in interaction with Gentile peoples. And scene three in both parts is Jonah calling on God. So today we're going to be there in the build-up, Jonah and Gentiles. In each of these scenes, we're moving from the setup, which is setting the stage, to the build-up where the drama is increased, the tension is increased, to finally what I'm calling the speak-up 
where the primary point or the thrust of that part of the book of Jonah comes out. And so today we're in the build-up, Jonah and Gentiles. And uh, this is going to be a a great presentation. I cannot wait. The punchline of our presentation last week, the, the, the setup was that Jonah saw his flight on the horizontal plane. He had been asked to go to the city of Nineveh, which was to the north and the east, but he fled instead some almost 4,000 kilometers or attempted to flee almost 4,000 kilometers to what city? Does anybody remember? That was the city of Tarshish. Very good. So he's, he's going in the exact opposite direction. God has called him to the north and the east, and he says, no, I'm heading due west. He thought he was moving on the horizontal plane, but God sees his movement on the vertical plane, and the author of the book of Jonah, is trying to make this point. It's unmistakable that he's trying to make this point. We saw that last week. In fact, the invitation to Jonah was arise. And we talked about that word. We're going to encounter that word again today. And the word literally in the Hebrew is up. Up. But then we saw that Jonah went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the ship. And we mentioned last week that Jonah's descent would continue into the following weeks, and you're going to see that today. Jonah's descent is not over. And the point that we're going to see today is that disobedience is a one-way street. When you set yourself on the path to disobedience, or as in the case of Jonah, on the path of rebellion, there are no left turns or right turns. There's only a U-turn. I want to say that again. The path to disobedience is a one-way street. There's not a left or a right. You're either obedient or disobedient. And when you find yourselves, as Jonah does here, if you find yourself on the path of disobedience or rebellion, the only kind of turn that you can make is not a slight right or a slight left or a hard right or a hard left. The only turn available on this one-way street is a U-turn. And the word repentance literally means to turn. So Jonah is heading down down, down. As we're going to see here, that downward trajectory continues, but Jonah will not today be to the place of repentance. He's not yet ready to make a U-turn. And so as we're going to see here in just the opening two verses, Jonah's descent toward death continues. Let's go look at this. We're going to be today in verses 4 to 16. Last week we were just in three verses. Today we're going to be in about 12 or 13 verses. So beginning in verse 4, we'll read the first two verses. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. But the Lord, Yahweh, sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone, what does your Bible say? Jonah had gone what? Jonah had gone down, and not just down, he had gone down, my Bible says, into the lowest parts of the ship. He had gone down into the bowels of the ship. We're going to see the significance of this in just a moment. He went as far down as you could go to the most out-of-the-way location that you could go in the ship. He went down into the lowest parts of the ship, and he lay down and was fast asleep. So Jonah's descent toward death continues. Jonah thinks he's moving merely in the horizontal plane, but God, from his divine perspective, sees that Jonah is not moving primarily horizontally. He's trying to go to Tarshish, to the west, but in fact, he's going down, right? He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Now he's gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, and then he lays down. 
Okay? This repetition and the organization and the structure that we're going to see in Jonah is absolutely fantastic. And we're going to see some things today that are just like mind-blowing. Okay, now you'll notice that we're beginning to see changes in scene. And as I've mentioned before, I just alluded to it a second ago, the book of Jonah is fantastically well-organized, very sophisticated in its basic structure. I think I've mentioned already twice that the only other book that I have a studied familiarity with that is similarly organized is the book of Revelation. The more that you learn about the book of Jonah, you just see, man, a lot of thought, a lot of energy, and a lot of intelligence went into the writing of this book. Okay, So as the author sets out to, to create the tension, to build the ch- tension, and to eventually get to the point, the scene will change. And as the scene changes, this alerts the reader to situations that are positive, that are less positive, and that are downright dangerous. Okay, So notice here on the screen. We open on dry land when the invitation comes from Yahweh to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Everything's positive, you're on dry land. Now, we live here in a coastal town, so you might be like, hey, what dry, the the, the ocean is not necessarily scary, water is not necessarily scary, but the Hebrew people, the Jewish people have historically not been a seafaring people. In fact, when you read many places in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and Isaiah and in other locations, the water was often associated with danger and with a portent of evil. You find, you find passages in the Psalms that say things like, the waters, when I pass through the waters, may they not overflow me. We have passages like the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where Daniel looks out at the great sea, and what he sees coming up out of the great sea are ferocious beasts, dangerous beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast. For Jewish people who spent most of their, their lives, they, they, were, they went basically from the, the, the shore there, Uh, near Joppa, most of their their territory, in fact, all of their territory was to the east. They were a land-loving people. And so when when we're introduced to God's call of Jonah, it's on land, and a Jewish reader would have a sense of security. Hey, this is where we're supposed to be, right? This is where we belong. But then the narrative changes. We go from dry land to being on the sea. And you'll notice that we just read a moment ago in verse 4, the moment that we get on the sea, all of a sudden there's a dangerous wind. A tempest arises instantaneously, and a Jewish reader would say, exactly. The sea is unstable. The sea is dangerous. You can't just go crawl into your house and wait out the storm. Sea is dangerous. Sea is scary. Sea is unpredictable and volatile. So Jonah moves, his journey should have been a a land-based journey to the north and the east. You don't have to cross any significant body of water to get to Nineveh. But he goes out onto the sea, and the Jewish reader would immediately begin to feel like, "Uh uh-oh. If this was a movie score, the, 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 the cellos and the low bass would begin to go, and you'd have a sense that tension was building, that there was a a sort of ominous air about the scene. It's then going to transition, as we'll see in our chapter today, to a stormy sea. Not just any ordinary sea, but now we're going to be on a stormy sea, number three. Before this chapter is up, Jonah will be in the sea, which for a Jewish reader, and and even for us, being thrown, cast into a raging sea, that should raise our anxiety level. We should feel like this is a really unstable, really dangerous, really volatile situation. As if that's not enough, before this story is over, you know Jonah will not just go into the sea, he will go, by way of a large fish, into the depths of the sea. This is Jonah totally out of his element, 
in an environment that to a Jewish reader and a Jewish writer approximates death. In fact, Jonah will pray from the belly of that fish. He will say, I descended to Sheol. And Sheol is the Hebrew word for death. Only when we get to chapter 3, right at the end of chapter 2, will Jonah be redeposited onto dry land, and then you kind of have this sense of relief, unexpected relief, because anybody that gets eaten by a fish generally dies. They're digest, digested, and that's the end of them. But, but startlingly, Jonah is redeposited back onto the land, and this should give us a sense of safety, of security, and of rebirth. So the scene changes are very indicative for the emotional landscape that you should be feeling at that time. And you especially have to hear this through Jewish ears and and hear it as a Jewish writer would have written it. Now, I love this. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems, what's the next word? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads to what? Leads to death. God said, go to Nineveh. That did not seem right to man. Right? Nineveh was, was the capital or would shortly be the capital of the superpower of the day, Assyria, the enemies of Israel. And so that seemed very dangerous. It didn't seem right. But Tarshish, on the southern end of the Iberian Peninsula, which is a beautiful place if you've ever been to Portugal or southern Spain, that's a desirable place to go. But as we talked about last week, Nineveh with God is better than Tarshish without him. Can somebody say Amen. So there's a way that seems to be right, the proverb says, to man. But the end of it leads to death. Another proverb in Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom itself is personified. It's one of the great poetic passages in the book of Proverbs. You have this closing verse in Proverbs chapter 8. It says, but he who sins against me, me being wisdom, personified wisdom, God himself, in fact, he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. And I love this line. All those who hate me, hate God, hate wisdom, they love what? Death. Now, if you would have asked Jonah, Jonah, do you love death? Do you want to go to Sheol? Do you want to go to the uttermost parts of the sea? He would have said, no, I want to go to Tarshish. But again, he sees horizontally what God sees vertically. There was a way that seemed right to Jonah, but God could see that the end of that journey would bring him right up with a brush against death itself. And it would have been sure death if God had not miraculously interposed. We mentioned this last week, but I just had to share it again. I had two people come up to me and say, I love that C.S. Lewis quotation. Lewis's point is a profound one. It is unmistakable, and it, it bears repeating here because it's consistent with our text. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So I just want happiness without God. I just want peace without God. I just want to be left alone without God. The reason that God refuses to leave you alone is that he wants you to be happy. Jonah wants to be left alone in this situation. How many people with the raising of hand would say that there have been times, instances, seasons in your life where you have felt the conviction of the Spirit and God has made you really uncomfortable? Yeah? You felt a conviction of the Spirit. You meant, man, I really shouldn't have done that. And you felt a, a strong, man, God is making you uncomfortable. Let me tell you something. When God makes you uncomfortable or places you in a difficult or otherwise awkward situation, it's not to create a difficult situation. It's because he is passionate about getting you on the right track. So Jonah thinks he's going in a way that seems right to himself. Of course he does. 
And I love this idea of Lewis. Don't ask God to give you happiness apart from himself. That's not even an option available to God because he himself is the creator and the source of happiness. Now, not only has Jonah gone down into the ship and then down into the bowels of the ship, he has laid down. Now, let's continue to read here. Let's look at verse 6 to 9. Let's continue to set the stage. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? And what is the first word out of the captain's mouth after that? What are you doing, sleeper? What are you, what are you thinking, mate? We're in the middle of a tempestuous nightmare, a storm to end all storms. What are you doing? And then what's the first word he says? Arise. Guess what? Same word. The very same Hebrew word, kum. Kum. Up. Arise. Can you imagine how startling and rude and awakening that would have been? The very command that you're fleeing from is arise, and then you're, st- you're woken up in the midst of a storm where a captain in incredulity is saying to you, arise. You think, this is a nightmare. I'm going to go back to sleep. Arise, but it gets even more amazing. Arise, call, or cry out to your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The word cry out is the word kara. And it's the very word that God had said, Arise, Jonah, kum, and cry against Nineveh, kara. And now he's awoken by this Gentile sailor captain who says to him, kum, kara, arise and cry out. And Jonah's thinking, this is the very thing that I'm trying to flee from, arising and crying out. And look at the invitation. Call on your God so that we may not perish. That is exactly the invitation that God had given to Jonah in the first place. Go to Nineveh so that they will not perish. Announce a portent and a prophecy of doom. And Jonah, in attempting to flee, has found himself right in the very situation that he was seeking to run from. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us. And here comes an interrogation. An interrogation that seems a little strange, but when you hear it through, when you hear it through the ears of the context in which it was written, it makes perfect sense. Look at the interrogation. For whose, for whose cause does this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I mean, that's a lot of really like, like in-your-face questions. Where are you from? What are you doing here? What's your occupation? Who are your people? And you might think, what a strange time for like a job interview. But listen carefully. What they're trying to ascertain is what deity has been offended. Because in the days of Jonah, there were regional deities. Every one of the sailors is crying out to their God, to whether it was the patron God of their family or of their tribe or of their region. And some God is very upset. In the ancient world, the idea of monotheism, one God, was an absurdity. The major Jewish contribution to the ancient world was this absurd notion of monotheism. There was only one God. That was regarded as absurd. In fact, so absurd that later the Romans would regard the Christians as atheists. They would literally call Christians atheists. They would say, oh, these people don't believe in the gods. Because every little region and every mountain and every river and and many families and tribes had their own parochial deities. And so they're saying, who are you? Where are you from? What are your people? 
What's your occupation? Who's the deity that we've offended so we can pray to that deity to settle this out? And then verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, the Elohim of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, there's so much going on here that we're going to pause and go back because we've already done so much. But you should feel a little bit of irony. This should be almost comical. I fear God who made the dry land and the sea. And that's why I'm sleeping down here. Sleeping in the midst of a tempestuous storm. Look at this. His sleepy withdrawal from reality and from other struggles is a warning to the church. As we study textually through Jonah, and not just through Jonah, but through any book in the Bible, if, we, if we're doing it right, lessons should be staring us right in the face. And this is a lesson that's staring us right in the face this morning. Jonah's sleepy withdrawal into the bowels of the ship, his disconnection from the context in which he found himself, and his disconnection from the struggles and difficulties of others is a warning to the church. It says to us, are you asleep in the bowels of the ship, Kingscliff Church? Are you asleep? Are others struggling? Are others trying to overcome difficulty and adversity? And you are blind, sleepy, slumbering to their struggle? One of the things that we are very passionate about with these new life groups and the growth group combining with the life group is to, is to become a part of this larger thing that's happening in many Seventh-day Adventist churches. And the language that we've given to that is servolution. There are people in our community that are struggling with various and sundry things and we're getting together on a weekly basis and we're discussing what are the needs of our community. If the, seventh, if the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church disappeared from Kingscliff, would anyone notice if the answer to that question is no, no one would notice, then we really don't deserve to be here. We're like Jonah. We're asleep in the belly of the ship. And someone might justifiably come to us and wake us up and say, what are you, how can you possibly be sleeping? Don't you see this crisis? Now, fortunately for us, very recently, and this is a win, this is a, for us a, win in, a, a mark in the win column, there were just major floods here, as you know, in this area in the last two months. And by the grace of God, Kevin Johnson and the ADRA team and a number of other volunteers weren't on the, the fringes or the outskirts of this catastrophe. They were right in the thick of it. Can you say amen? So much so that Kevin just sent me a letter the other day that was received from someone in the higher-ups. Thank you, Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church, for getting involved because the nature of the flood, when the, when the northern, northern centers were cut off from the southern centers, if the Kingscliff Church and others hadn't stepped into that gap, there would have been a much greater problem right here in our own community. And praise God, our local community said, hey, we're thankful that that Kingscliff Church is in our neighborhood. Can you say Amen. But we don't want this to be a one-off. We don't want this to be a one-off. We don't want to only be available when there's a disaster or a catastrophe. What if our community came and shook us awake and said, Kum kara! Get up and call on the name of your God. There's people in your neighborhood that are committing suicide. There's people in your neighborhood that need father figures. There's people in your neighborhood that have serious needs. What are you doing? You claim to believe in God. You claim to believe in charitable works. What are you doing, Sleeper. It's a warning to the church, to us today. When a church hides from its community, it is worse than a mere absence. 
A church becomes like a dead weight to that community, a stumbling block to others who say they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. We want to be involved in, in the dirt and in the muck and in the mire of our local community. Can you say amen to that? We don't want to be so aloof, so holy, so celestial that people feel afraid to approach us or, heaven forbid, afraid to attend our church service. If this church is good for nothing except to meet together and sing some nice songs and to hear the, the preaching of Scripture, then we're, we're not doing what the community needs done and what they might not even know we are capable of doing. We would be worse than merely absent from our community. We would be a dead weight in our community. Now, God's call, as we mentioned last week, to Jonah was a directional call, and it was an urgent call. Up! Come! Notice this. The Gentile captain's call to Jonah was the very same call. Kum, kara, up, cry on the name of your God. And I think here's another point that's staring us right in the face, and this is a practical one. And that is that sometimes the voice of God to you is not some, my friend, my friend, my friend, my friend, my son, my son, my son. It doesn't have to be Charlton Heston-esque or Morgan Freeman-esque voice. Sometimes the voice of God to you and me can be the voice of a friend, the voice of a spouse, the voice of an associate, even the voice of a critic. The author of Jonah wants you to get the point. God said to Jonah, Kum kara, arise and cry. When Jonah refuses to hear the call of God and tries to flee in the opposite direction, he's awoken in a startled fashion, and the first words that he hears are, Kum kara. And he's thinking, this is the voice of God to me. Sure, it was the voice of a Gentile captain. Have you ever found yourself behaving in ways toward those that you love, toward your spouse or toward your children or toward a close associate or a family member? And they say something and you suddenly become keenly aware that this is the voice of God to you. Friends, you can be the voice of God to your senior pastor, and hopefully on occasion your senior pastor and his associate, Pastor Joel, can be the voice of God to you. It takes a community. God does not generally speak sonorously and miraculously from heaven. The voice of God is most often heard in community. Thank you, Leon, for that amen. It was well placed. Now, here's a great point, another point that's staring us in the face. Non-believers have a right to expect believers to behave as believers. Yes or no? This is a great point. Because you sense a kind of incredulity there. When he comes down, he says, he says what are you doing? My translation says, what do you mean, sleeper? What are you doing? Don't you have a God upon whom you could call? Where are you from? Who are your people? Of what nation are you? What is your occupation? Hey, don't you have, can't you make a contribution here? And for those of us that dare to take upon ourselves the name of Christian, or even if you want to be more specific still, Seventh-day Adventist Christian, or whatever flavor of Christian you are, whatever flavor of believer you are, if there is a general awareness in your sphere of influence, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, that you are a Christian, there is a right 
and a, 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 a reasonable right for those that are around you to have a reasonable expectation that you will behave in ways that are in keeping with what you claim to believe. Yes or no? So if you're a business owner and you're dishonest in business, that is not behaving in ways that are consistent with your profession. If you behave in ways, as a, if I behaved in ways as the senior pastor towards my children that were abusive or unkind or otherwise not supportive, that would be, my, my children could say to me, Dad, that's not how you should be behaving. I love this idea that it is the Gentile sailor captain who's exhorting the prophet of Israel to behave like a prophet of Israel. And sometimes it's those, and we're going to get to this point in just a second, sometimes it's those non-believers in our community that say things and alert us. In fact, we had a situation in our own Sabbath school class where one of the young people that was attending, who was not a member of our church, who was regularly attending our young adult Sabbath school class, Sam will know who I'm talking about here, who said, hey, I love going to your Sabbath school class and you all seem like really nice people, but why aren't you doing more? Wow, that's exactly what we need to hear to have an outside voice, an outside perspective come in and say, hey, if you really believe this, then why aren't you doing this? Can you say amen? I hope you're feeling a little uncomfortable. Non-believers have a right to expect believers to behave as believers. Romans chapter 2, verse 23, the Apostle Paul makes this very point when he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, and then these three very painful words, because of you, as it is written. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and what we're going to see here, oh man, I'm going to just run ahead a little bit. Jonah is a microcosm. That means it's a model. It's a miniature of Israel's failings and of how the Gentile nations related to Israel's failings. This is going to be phenomenal, okay? Hang on to that thought. Right at this point, we have to introduce the complicated and fantastic structure of Jonah chapter 1, the second part here. Okay, take this off. See, I'm getting warmed up now. Okay, I've always wanted to do this. Perfect! Okay, check this out. We looked last week in verse 3, and we saw how verse 3 is formed on a kind of chiastic parallelism, okay, where you have A, B, C, B, A, and this was a common Jewish way of writing, where, where English poetry often hinges on rhyme and meter, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Hebrew poetry doesn't hinge on rhyme and meter. Hebrew poetry and Hebrew communication in general hinges on repetition, of ideas. Recapitulation is what it's called. Say something, say it again. And we had that great quotation last week where it's varied repetition so that at every layer, a little new element is introduced. Look at this. This is what we just read through. And I know it's a little small, but to get it all on there, hopefully you can see it. So we're going to go A, B, C, D, E. And look at this. We start with Yahweh hurls the wind The storm begins, and the sailors fear, and they pray to their gods. That's what we began there in verse 4. Jonah sleeps, and the cry comes from the Gentile captain, cry out to your God so that we will not perish, continuing our way through. That we may know, they cast lots so that we may know on whose account the storm has come. The sailors then question Jonah, who are you, where are you from, what's your occupation, what are you doing here? And then finally, verse 9, which is the centerpiece of the whole thing. We'll return to that in just a second. 
Verse 9, look at it again. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh. And that's the, that's the mountaintop. Now, as we continue to make our way through the rest of the passage, check this out. The sailors fear, now we're going the other way, E-D-C-B-A. The sailors fear. The sailors question Jonah. Jonah says, I know this is on my account. The sailors struggle for land. They cry out to Yahweh, let us not perish. The sailors then hurl Jonah into the water. Same word, by the way. The Lord hurled a strong wind on the sea. The sailors hurled Jonah into the water. The storm ceases, and now the sailors fear and worship Yahweh, not their own regional gods and deities. So when you put it all together, it looks like this. It's absolutely phenomenal, the structure of this book. What you have is correspondence between A and A, B and B, C and C, D and D, and the center point of any chiastic parallelism, the point that the, the writer is very purposely, very meticulously driving you toward is the center point, the top of the mountain. So think of it as a kind of staircase, right? You're going up A, B, C, D, E. And when you get to that E, that, that, that the top of that chiastic summit, you're supposed to say, this is the point. But look at the parallelisms. Yahweh hurls winds, the sailors hurl Jonah. The storm begins, the storm ceases. The sailors fear and pray to their gods, the sailors fear and worship Yahweh. I've put these in red on purpose. Notice B, Jonah sleeps while the sailors struggle for land. The sailors say, cry out, the captain says, cry out to your God, and the sailors cry out to Yahweh, the very thing they had asked Jonah to do that he was fast asleep and not doing. Cry out to your God so that we will not perish. They then say to, to Yahweh, don't let us perish when we throw this man into the sea. That we may know on whose account this has happened. And Jonah says, I know this has happened on my account. The sailors question Jonah, and then they later question him. And then finally at the center of this, Jonah fears and the sailors fear. Let's read the rest of the passage, and you'll see that it mirrors in a phenomenal way what we've already read, beginning in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may be calm for us? They questioned him. For the sea was growing more tempestuous. The storm is not abating, it's increasing. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. The word here, the men rowed, is literally the Hebrew word they dug. And if you've ever been in a rowing situation and you're really rowing hard, you're digging deep. I mean, the rowers are giving it their all to save Jonah, the rebellious prophet, on whose account all this is happening anyway. Man, the author, of Gen- the author of Jonah is sending a strong message here about who is pious and who is rebellious, about who is godly and who is wicked. Verse 14, therefore we cried out to Yahweh and we said, we pray, Yahweh, please don't let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood. Clearly, these are conscientious people. If they had been hardened pirate sailors, they would have just chucked them overboard. But there's a piety here. There's a concern here for Jonah's life. We don't want this man's blood to be on us. Oh, Lord, you have done as you please. So they picked up Jonah, and reluctantly, after trying to not do it, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to Yahweh, and they took vows. End of what we'll cover today. 
Friends, the structure here is absolutely fantastic. And at the centerpiece of this parallelism, what the author of Jonah is trying to get across to you is that Jonah feared Yahweh. We will return to this point in just a second. Now, several points of contrast, if, you're, if you read through the study carefully, emerge. I mean, it's just inescapable that, that the author of Jonah is driving at something. He's trying to say the pious is actually impious and the assumedly wicked are actually righteous. Look at this. Jonah, the sailors are afraid. Jonah is asleep, number one. Number two, the sailors are praying. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of Yahweh. Number three, the, the mariners are laboring. Jonah is inactive. The mariners are trying to lighten the load. In fact, that's why they find Jonah. Did you ever think about that? Jonah, remember, was in the belly of the ship. He was in the cargo holding area. So they're down there looking for stuff that they can throw out. This is the point the author of Jonah is, ma- the author of Jonah is making. It's a fascinating point. They're looking for stuff they can do without. And in the place where they're looking for stuff that they can do without, Jonah is sleeping in that place. Jonah is also thrown overboard with all the other stuff to lighten the load. He's a useless contribution. He shouldn't be there on the ship. He's something that has to be thrown overboard. Oh, friends, and this is a prophet of Yahweh, the worshiper of the one true God. How many times has the church been in a situation where we could just be effectively thrown overboard because we are not contributing significantly or substantively to our local community? People are coming out, hey, we just got to get, we need some more building space. What's a building that's not doing thing in our, doing anything in our local communities? Oh, here's the Seventh-day Adventist church. We can plow that down to put up a strip mall because at least people can get their nails done there. You know, really important things. The sailors were urging, call on Yahweh. Well, Jonah's not only not calling on Yahweh, he's fleeing from Yahweh. Look at this, five more. The mariners clearly want to live. I mean, they're doing their best to try and persevere. Jonah is content to perish. The mariners are seeking the cause of the problem. They're casting lots to try to figure out why this has happened. Jonah conceals his identity. They are worshipers of the false god. Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh, false gods. Number nine, they try to save Jonah, and Jonah is content to not be saved. And finally, as the the narrative comes to its grand climax here, this scene, the sailors, the Gentile, pagan, wicked, I use that in quotations, wicked sailors are calling on Yahweh, and at no point in this scene does Jonah call on Yahweh. Did you notice that? At no point in this scene does Jonah, the prophet of the true God, pray to God. He will pray but not until he's awash in the bile of a fish, in the, in the digestive juices of a fish. That's a good time to pray. Jonah should be praying already. In fact, he shouldn't be on the ship full stop. So this developing, and we're talking about this is the build-up. We've had the setup. Now we're in the build-up. Now a really cool thing is happening here in the hearts and lives of the sailors, the hardened sailors. They see that Yahweh's wrath toward Jonah and his mercy toward them is convincing the sailors of Yahweh's amazing goodness and faithfulness. They're looking at the situation and they're saying, whoa, something is going on here. And this is absolutely astonishing. I'm going to pluck a passage from the New Testament. Romans chapter 11, one of the most complicated and difficult passages in the New Testament. This part is not particularly complicated, but look at this. Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes in verses 29 to 33. 
For the gifts, of, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let me just pause right there. Jonah is a prophet. That's a gift. The call to Jonah was, Kum kara! Well, when he's awoken by the sailor captain, what does he hear? Kum kara! The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God will chase you down. He loves you too much to let you flee. So he's chasing. What we see here is Yahweh's relentless pursuit of Jonah. Notice what Paul says. For as you, the Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, yet you have now obtained mercy through their Jewish disobedience. Watch this. This is the story of Jonah. Even so, these also now have been disobedient, Gentiles, that through the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they, the Jews, could also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, man, I said it a moment ago, but I want you to see this. What we're actually seeing here in the story of Jonah is a reenactment of the whole history of Israel. Where the unfaithful Israelite, God punishes them, and then people like Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or others see the way that Yahweh is dealing with his people, and they turn to Yahweh. So in a really remarkable way, the disobedience of Jonah is actually bringing about a positive outcome, namely in this situation, the turning of Gentile hearts to the true God. Man, God is amazing. Look at how the, Paul says this is all very mysterious. This is really hard to understand. So Paul just shakes his head in bewilderment. And notice what he says here. Oh, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I mean, how does God pull that off? That a rebellious prophet actually becomes good news for Gentile sailors? That a rebellious nation, the nation of Israel, actually becomes good news for the Gentiles? Because God treated them with wrath and judgment, and then the, the, the onlooking Gentiles are, are driven to Yahweh because of what he sees happen there. And then in a really cool reversal of fortune, when God treats the Gentiles with compassion and kindness and mercy... The point that he makes there is that the Jews look back on that and say, hey, we want some of that mercy too. And God says, yeah, you can come in. And Paul just shakes his head, as I suppose Jonah might as, uh, as the author of Jonah might have as well, and just said, blah, 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 blah. how God pulls all this together in a marvelous synchronous symphony is known only to God. His ways are past finding out. Can he say amen? Man, there's just so much depth in here. Israel's unfaithfulness historically, created an opportunity for Yahweh's faithfulness and goodness to be magnified. You can say that this way. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In a really weird and wonderful and wild way, Israel's unfaithfulness does not thwart the plan of God. It actually enables and magnifies the plan of God in a way that it wouldn't have been magnified had Israel been faithful. Does that mean that God wanted Israel's unfaithfulness? Of course not. But he's so brilliant, he's so clever, he's so intelligent, he sees all of the various factors, and he can steer situations that seem catastrophically bad to be amazingly good. A member of this church, somebody that many of you know well who's not with us here today, Summer, has breast cancer, as you know, many of you, uh, her grandmother died of breast cancer when she was very young. Her mother died of breast cancer when she was very young. So it was little surprise when Summer also got breast cancer. 
And Summer, being a, a vigorous person and a journalist, she was not going to take this laying down. So she started researching like crazy, and she started getting healthy in every other area of her life, and she just applied herself to such a degree that the amount that she knows about breast cancer is astonishing. Well-researched, very intelligent, very careful. And, and if you can believe what I'm going to tell you right now, and if you don't believe it, you can ask Summer. On one occasion when I was sitting down to Summer, and I said, Summer, you are an astonishing person. I'm so proud of you. I'm in awe of the way that you are handling this cancer situation. And she said to me, cancer is one of the best things that has ever happened to me. What? What? Because, friends, that's how God works. God doesn't cause cancer, but he'll use it. God didn't cause Jonah's rebelliousness, but he'll use it. God doesn't cause us to make really poor decisions in our lives, but he'll use those decisions. How unsearchable are his ways? We're not serving some little paper deity who when we make a mistake, he's befuddled and he says, I I don't know what to do. My plans are flustered now. You blew it. I I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm trapped. No. God has a thousand ways of which we know only one or two. Man, I love this idea. Israel's unfaithfulness created an opportunity. Yahweh's passionate pursuit of Jonah and his mercy and acceptance of the sailors are bound tightly together. The sailors come to be exposed to Yahweh through the prophet's disobedience. Amazingly, just as Yahweh employed various nations to discipline Israel, the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. There's a thought. When it came time to discipline Israel for their disobedience in the Old Testament, God used Babylon to do it. He used Egypt to do it. He used Assyria to do it. And here, have you ever wondered why Jonah didn't just say, it's because of me, it's on my account, and just go jumping in? Why didn't Jonah do it? I mean, he was an able-bodied man. He got onto the ship. He went into the bowels of the ship. Why didn't he jump off the ship? That's scary there, Jamin. The nations discipline the prophet of God. Oh, man, there's just so much going on here. Now, right at the center of this is this idea of fears. Jonah fears, and the sailors fear. Notice that I've highlighted here in red all of the elements of fear. Right at the centerpiece of this chiasm is this idea of fear. But when it comes to the sailors, we see what can only be described as an intentional evolution of their fear. If you look at verse 5, it says that there was a serious storm, and it says the sailors were afraid. That's the fear that any of us would experience. That's an ordinary fear. If you're a sailor and and a serious storm comes up on the water, and you say, man, this is a bad storm. You're afraid. That's verse 5. But then in verse 10, in the Hebrew, there's an idiom here. It's they feared with great fear. The fear now is intensifying because they realize this is not an ordinary storm caused by high and low pressure systems. This is a supernatural storm. And so now they're like, oh, man, and that's the ancient world, a world ruled by capricious and arbitrary deities. And they're like, oh, man, we've really made one of these local gods mad. We've teed him off. We've got to find out who it is so we can make things right. And then when things are made right by the hurling of Jonah into the sea, I cannot wait to get to that next week. Verse 16 says, they feared with great fear Yahweh. So we go from an ordinary fear to a supernaturally based fear to a fear of the one true God. And some of your translations will say, not that the mariners feared Yahweh. Several translations say, the mariners worshipped Yahweh. 
And the reason is, is that this word fear is intimately tied together with the idea, the Hebrew idea of reverence and worship. Get the picture in your mind. The prophet of Israel is fleeing in a westerly direction, and Gentile sailors are coming to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true God. This is absolutely amazing. This clicker is not clicking very well. So the central contrast is Jonah's hypocritical fear. This is right at the center. His hypocritical fear of Yahweh. Who are you? I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh. Really? I'm a Christian. Really? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Really? If we take the name of a Christian or a follower of Yahweh or a Seventh-day Adventist, we deserve to be scrutinized by those that do not share our faith. We expect firemen to put out fires. We expect bankers to do banking. We expect doctors to, to, to have a sound medical practice. And we have every reasonable expectation. If you take upon yourself the name of Jesus, the name of Yahweh, the name of a Christian, there's every reasonable expectation that you will behave in ways that are consistent with that profession. Not that you're perfect, but, that in, but you're not asleep in the belly of the ship when everybody else is struggling to try to get the ship to land. And so right at the center of this marvelous chiastic structure is Jonah's hypocritical fear, I fear Yahweh, and the genuine and, and active and authentic fear of the Gentile sailors. We've made this point here before, and I'll just briefly make it again. There are numerous passages in Scripture that affirm God's acceptance of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people, and of non-Christian people who do the right thing in their heart. No passage is clearer than, on this than Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law or Torah, that's to say the Old Testament, when the Gentiles who don't know, have the Old Testament, they do by nature the things contained in the Old Testament, they are an Old Testament for themselves, even though they don't have an Old Testament. Because they show the requirements of the Old Testament are written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This absolutely radical notion that God does not exclude Gentiles or exclude non-Jewish or non-Christian people simply because they're not Christian. Maybe they've had no exposure. Maybe they've had no opportunity. Maybe the Christian God that's been exposed, that they've been exposed to is something that they justifiably resist because it's an ugly God. It's a terrible caricature, a depiction of the one true God. And I've used this quotation here before, but I'll use it on every available opportunity, every appropriate opportunity. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in her classic on the life of Christ, Desire of Ages, says this, Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. That's what the mariners were doing, by the way. The mariners were trying to help Jonah at the peril of their own life. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Can somebody say amen? You! Though ignorant of the written law of God, the Old Testament, and the New, they have never heard His voice speaking to them in nature, or they have heard the voice of of him speaking to them in nature. They have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. Can you say amen? 
So the author of Jonah is setting up this tension where you'll say, hey, wait a minute, where's the pious prophet of Israel? Oh, he's sleeping in the bowels of the ship. Where are the wicked Gentiles? Oh, they're trying to save that prophet's life. And you're supposed to step back, have a little chuckle and say, who's righteous and who's wicked here? By the way, this isn't just a Jonah issue. You will remember in the days of Jesus, Jesus was asked, what's the great commandment in the law? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbors yourself. And some people are like, okay, question Messiah, or question Rabbi, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story about a Samaritan who behaves in ways very similar to the way that these Gentile sailors are behaving, trying to save life, trying to help. And then the Jews and the priests and the Levites were just going by, tisk tisk, not paying any attention. There are many non-Christian Christians and many Christian non-Christians. Can you say amen? Let that settle in. There are many non-Christian Christians and there are many Christian non-Christians. The name Christian, the name Seventh-day Adventist, the name of Jew doesn't mean anything. God is working with everyone, everywhere. Can somebody say amen? Thank you, Jesus. The mariner's hard but futile rowing hints that salvation cannot come by human effort, however sincere and vigorous. When Jonah says, throw me into the sea, they're like, no, no, we're going to dig. The Hebrew word is dig, and they try to save. And the author of Jonah is sending us a, a, a subtle, not so subtle signal here, that when Yahweh brings about a judgment, no human effort can deliver from it. When Yahweh brings about a judgment, no human effort or overture will escape. No, that's not going to happen. So they try and they try and they try. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. Somebody better say amen. It is the what? It is the gift of God, not by rowing, lest someone should boast. If salvation is going to come to the situation, and it is, it will come by Yahweh's intervention, not by human effort. Oh, now this is a really cool point. There is not a point from Ellen White, Faith and Works, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of everyone than the impossibility of man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I love that last phrase there, salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, because you have a series of prepositional phrases here, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little radical here. I'm going to take out one of those prepositional phrases, not because it's unimportant, but because the way you know if you're dealing with a prepositional phrase in English grammar is if you take it out, the sentence still maintains its structure, so watch what happens here. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We know that it's in Jesus Christ, so we're just going to extract momentarily that prepositional phrase and look at what we end up with. Say that with me. Salvation is through faith alone. And when we say salvation is through faith alone, we are planting ourselves firmly in the Protestant tradition. This is, as you may be aware, the 500-year anniversary of Luther's protest in Wittenberg, October 31, 1517. Here we are in June of 2017, 500 years ago. The Protestant Reformation was carried powerfully and profoundly forward when Luther, a monk, resisted the overtures of the church, resisted the overtures of the establishment, and he and others stood on these five solas. The word sola is Latin for only... 
And they stood firm. They refused to be moved. They said, not by councils, not by posts, uh, popes, not by priests, not by ecclesiastical councils. They said, only Scripture, sola scriptura, only Christ, no priests and other mediaries, only by grace, not by works, only by faith, not by any rowing of mine, and only to the glory of God. The five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and I tell you, some big things are going to happen this year and are already happening, where the Protestant world, in order to try and get back to Rome, are going to make, are already making, and will continue to make some very serious concessions. But Seventh-day Adventists and others like us are going to stand over here and say, we're going to stand on this idea that salvation is through faith alone, communicated in Scripture alone given by grace alone, through Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. Yes, the church has a role to play, but the role of the church is proclamational, not salvational. We have something to say, but the church doesn't save anybody. Can somebody say amen? All right, that's why this year at Light Bears, in about a month's time, we are doing our whole convocation this year. It's titled 500, The Reformation Continues. I cannot wait. It's going to be so exciting. And as soon as those materials are available and up, I will get them to you as well. I cannot, I cannot wait. I'm just going to skip that quotation. I want to get to the punchline here. All right, we're right at the end now. This is again from Kevin J. Youngblood's Jonah, God's Scandalous Mercy. We looked at this last week. The mariners are gripped in the end by a profound sense of awe at Yahweh's readiness to reveal himself and at his responsiveness to their great need. He's not like these other deities that you cry and you cry and you cry and you pray and you pray and you pray and you you make offering and offering and offering to and nothing happens. They they pray to Yahweh and something happens. Prayer works. Can you say amen? Lance, can you say amen? I had Lance and the team praying that I would find my Bible. This Bible was missing for two and a half months and it's a small thing. But God knew where this Bible was and he brought it back to me right on time. Right? Amen. It's just amazing. God answers prayer. Love this idea. They're like, who is this God that answers prayer? Well, he's Yahweh. He's the God of Jesus. Never have they encountered a deity so forthcoming regarding his will and so ready to deliver those who turn to him in humble petition. This is a living God. This is an active God. This fear for Yahweh, however, is no mere religious sentiment. It finds tangible expression expression in the crew's grateful worship. And this will be the final point that I will make. Actually, the second to the final point I will make. Friends, notice how spontaneously and how authentically worship just springs once there's deliverance. Now, I hope you can take this on the chin. You ready? Here we go. I'm going to punch you in the head here to take it well. Our worship should reflect the greatness of our God, Yahweh, and true worship always does. Half-hearted singing, non-participatory singing, sitting there, complaining about the singing, whinging about the worship, every aspect of it. When we come together in corporate worship, if you come with a consumer mindset and you say, I didn't like that song, there was too much drum, there wasn't enough drum, there wasn't enough hymn, there was too many hymns. If you come with a consumer mindset, I want to tell you something. You will leave disappointed. Something Corporate is happening. Something special is happening. When we come together as a body, we are not coming to get, but to give praise to Yahweh. So that your personal preferences and desires... Hey, look, I have personal preferences and desires too. 
There's food that I like to eat. But if I go to your house to eat, I don't expect that you will cater to my whims and desires. I'm there as a part of a community, and we have this really self-centered, me-centered, consumerist mentality that if it doesn't meet me and my standards and every detail, that you think you are somehow given a pass to not participate in worship with your community. Everybody is making concessions, and when we're doing worship right, spontaneously and, and wonderfully and enthusiastically, we should just praise Yahweh! So many of our attitudes toward worship and toward music and toward the service and other things is very consumer-based. Hey, I didn't like that. Well, who cares if you didn't like it? Are you here to get or to give? I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and make a service that appeals to as many as possible, but at the end of the day, friends, when the worshipers there on the ship, they just begin to praise Yahweh and fear Yahweh and give offerings to Yahweh, I can imagine that they weren't saying, hey, there's, there's too much drums in that. That's, that's an old song. That's a new song. We need a shorter sermon. <laughs> Our worship should reflect the greatness of Yahweh. Can you say amen? True worship is less about me and my and more about us and ours. I want to tell you something right now that might spoil you on a lot of worship songs, including hymns. It spoiled me on a lot of them, and it might spoil you as well. Notice how many of the songs that we sing are in the personal singular pronoun, I, me, my. Friends, when we come to, in fact, many of the songs that we just sang right there, I, and by the way, this is praise songs and it's hymns, equally guilty of so personalizing worship, so personalizing faith that you, the rest of you may as well not even be here because I'm singing to Jesus. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the lilies. And the voice that I hear, he walks with me and he talks with me. We sing these songs in public. Right? Nothing wrong with that song, by the way. If you want to sing it in your own rose garden devotionally, fine. But when we come together as a community, we should be singing less about me and my and I and more about us and ours and we. And a really cool thing happens as a community when we just spontaneously give praise to Yahweh. You stop being a consumer and a complainer and you become a worshiper. And I tell you, this would be a legacy in this church if we could just worship freely. There are churches that you can go to in the United States where you just get the sense that nobody cares particularly about every detail meeting their specific needs and and perspective and preferences. They're just there to worship. And as a community, we're giving praise to Yahweh. Oh, I love the fact that you're a little quiet. It means that I'm t- it's touching right where it should be touching. I take that back. You're always quiet. All right. Worship should bind us together profoundly, but it often divides us. And you know that's true. Okay. Last point I want to make here. Great one. C.S. Lewis. I saw this. Letters to Malcolm. The perfect church service would be one we are almost unaware of. Because our attention would have been totally on God. That's, a, that's what we're striving for here. Let's create a service where... Okay, last point. This is so awesome. And I know it's been a long one, but I guess suck it up. For those of you that have young children, sorry. Forgive me. It's, it's on me, obviously. This is so cool. Jonah and Jesus, many of you would be aware that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell a story about... Jesus being in the boat with his disciples and a storm comes on the sea and Jesus is asleep in the ship and they wake him up and then he says to the wind and the waves, stop it. Okay, check this out. Look at these parallels here. Jonah 
The disciples are following Jesus. These are from Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. Okay? So, the disciples are following. Jonah is fleeing. The suddenness of the storm in both of these accounts. Wild and windy seas. The ship threatens in both accounts to break up. In both accounts, somebody is in a deep sleep. In the case of Jonah, he's in a deep sleep in the bowels of the ship. In the case of Jesus, he's asleep in the ship. Number six, both are rudely awakened. Jonah is rudely awakened. Kum kara! Arise and call. Jesus is rudely awakened. Don't you care that we're perishing? Number seven, both have a fear of perishing. Number eight, in both situations, the sea is calmed by the protagonist in the story. In the case of Jonah, by Jonah. And in the case of Jesus, by Jesus. Men then marvel that the protagonist has calmed the sea. And fascinatingly, the phrase feared exceedingly is used in both the Jonah story and in the gospel story. Now, why would we have these tremendous similarities between the gospel story of Jesus in the ship and Jonah? And this is it. It seems impossible that the gospel writers didn't have the Jonah story specifically in mind. Well, why? Why would they have this Jonah story in mind? Particularly when we consider Jesus' emphatic identification with the sign of Jonah. We said that in our introduction, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Notice this is just a few chapters later, Matthew 8, now we're in Matthew 12. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's as if Matthew and Luke, and to a lesser degree Mark, are setting you up for the prophet Jonah. Here's a Jonah-like story, a Jonah-like situation. Jesus is the new Jonah. And if you're thinking, Jonah in what sense? In the rebellious sense? No. In what sense is Jesus Jonah? Now, that's a whole other sermon we're going to get to in the future. But Jesus says, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days, this is the hint as to how Jesus was Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The gospel stories and the Jonah story are both telling this ship story that are very similar, setting us up for the real Jonah, the true Jonah, not the Jonah on the belly of the fish, but the Jonah in the heart of the earth. The center of both of these scenes is an issue of identity. Just who is this mysterious man? Remember? Who are you? Where are you from? And what is your occupation? Identity. We need to know who this sleeping person is. Well, that's at the center of the Jesus story. Who are you? Where are you from? And what is your occupation? In the first scene, a faithless man seriously endangers the lives of those around him. That's the Jonah scene. In the gospel scene, in the second scene, the faithful Messiah saves those who fear danger and death. Friends, we are set up for one of the most Christ-centered applications and one of the most Christ-centered books in the entire corpus of Scripture. Jesus said, come to me all, Jew and Gentile alike, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, Jesus saves both Gentiles and Jonah's. Jesus saves both Gentiles and Jonah's, both believers and non-believers. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. But he often does it 
in unexpected ways. God saves both Gentiles and Jonas, but not always as expected. And next week, we're going to encounter a salvation that looks suspiciously like wrath. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, today, man, this is a long sermon, Lord. I hope it came across, and I hope that in this case, more wasn't less. Father, help us to have a strong sense that you are a living God, the true God, not a paper God, not a plastic God, not a widget God, not a concept God. You're the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, you are just as alive today as you have ever been. You are just as awake today as you have ever been. Father, are we alive? Are we awake? Or are we in the bowels of the ship? And Father, today, some of us, you're waking us up. You're shaking us and you're saying, what are you doing, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Father, today, some of us have heard the news that our non-Christian friend or brother or sister or son, that just because they're non-Christian doesn't mean they're not Christian. And Father, we've also heard that just because we're Christian doesn't mean we're non-Christian. That you pay far more attention to action than profession. Today I pray, Father, that this would be a church, and it is, but I pray increasingly and even more we would be a church that's passionate not just about saying but about doing. Not just about proclaiming but about living. That we would be so immersed in the, in the muck and the mire in the lives of our community that we would be inseparable from our community. And finally, Father, today some of us have learned that Worship is not about consumerism. It's a spontaneous reaction to the greatness of Yahweh. And Father, I want to ask your forgiveness where I have come at times as a consumer and found myself disappointed that something didn't meet my supposedly important standards. Father, I just pray that the spirit of primitive godliness, of primitive worship, of authentic praise to you would emerge in our financial offerings, in our singing offerings, in our intellectual offerings as we pay attention, in in our service, Father, that we would just spontaneously be worshiping you, the one true God, the great God, the God of the earth and the sea. Father, some of us today are Jonah's, fleeing and asleep. Father, some of us today are Gentiles, not aware as we could and should be. And Father, some of us, I suppose, are both or in between. I pray that today your saving grace would be upon us and that we would respond to this mysterious man and say, who are you? Where are you from? What is your occupation? And we would hear Jesus say, I'm from heaven. I'm the Messiah. And I am your Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and his will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, 
but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.